Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 78. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, I'll be speaking with two Bay Area performing legends, Frisco Fred Anderson and Mitchell Barrett. Before we get to the conversation, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. To find out about this great group of jugglers, go to juggle.org. All right, drop everything. Get ready for Mitchell Barrett and Fred Anderson. Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 78. My two special guests, San Francisco legends, Frisco Fred Anderson and Mitchell Barrett. Welcome, guys. Welcome. 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 Hey, guys. Now, we're sitting in Mitchell's living room, or actually his kitchen, here in beautiful San Francisco. Mitchell, where are you from? How'd you learn to juggle? And how'd you end up here in San Francisco? Uh, born in Tampa, Florida, but at the age of two weeks, uh, I was moved to New York City, where I spent most of my formative years. And uh, where did I learn to juggle? I learned to juggle in Tucson, Arizona in 1976. A guy named Dixon White, he was a guy that was a kind of a pure circus man. He, he rode a 21-foot unicycle with a little tiny wheel. It just so happens that one of his performing people that he was working with, I fell in love with. The name was Randall. And um, Randall didn't last, but my love for juggling and, and circus did, and that's how I got started. Now, you met a, a juggler there I think you taught who became a very good juggler and partnered with Barry Felker in an act called Dynamotion. You taught Jim Strinker to juggle, is that correct? Yeah, uh, I don't know if I actually taught Jim Strinker how to officially juggle. I was there when he was a very, very young kid. He was like 12 or 13 years old. He was a friend of Barrett Felker, who at that time was maybe 14 or 15 years old. And between the two of them, it was amazing. They would like be practicing eight hours a day over mattresses, juggling seven balls and flashing eight and nine. It was absolutely amazing in those days. And they were just kids. Now, when you're back in New York, you had a very special nickname. What was your nickname, <laughs> and, and how did you get it? Oh, my God. You've done research. Yes, I have. This is a good podcast. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> uh, I was known as The Barge. Not, not like barging in a room, but an actual ship mm-hmm. barge. Because I was, um, you know, I, I grew up in New York City, and it was a schoolyard that we all hung out with. And it was, always, it was like West Side Story, Jets Against the Sharks. And I was one of those guys that... If uh, we ever had any kind of trouble, you know, I was one of the tougher guys. And uh, but to my credit, and I'm not, I'm not bragging, I never really initiated anything. But sometimes I would have to step in and defend a friend, and that's why they so they called me the barge. And you're a fairly large fella. What's, what's your <laughs> what was your uh, peak weight? What did you top out at? And of course, we're talking pure muscle. Well, in those days, we're talking. I was six feet tall, and fighting weight was like 190. Now that I'm old, it's like I've gotten as high as 260, and now I'm um, currently 225. I'm very proud of that. Nice, nice. <laughs> now, Fred, are you a native California guy? Where, where'd you come from? A uh, native California guy, yeah. Born in Los Angeles. Uh, when I was five, uh, my mom was... Wait, you were born when you were five? That's I was no, When he was five. Oh. I was born when I was born five. Born in Los Angeles. Born in five. Follow years. along, Mitchell. Okay. <laughs> when he was five, he moved with his mother. We'll give you a timeline. We're going <laughs> to do a time. We're going we're gonna to chart it out on a piece of paper. Thanks, guys. I'm a little slow today. It's okay. It's okay. I took an antihistamine. I'm slow, too. And, Mitchell, you're recovering also from uh, major heart surgery. Quadruple heart bypass, uh, December 10th, and I'm hanging in there. I'm good. 
Good, good. All right, back to Fred. Nothing back, about you, Mitch. Back to Fred. Back, back to, Fred. to me. So, okay, back born in Los me. Angeles, moved here when you were five. Moved here with, uh, when I was five with my mom and grew up here in San Francisco. And I was here when sort of the street performing thing really got off the ground. I learned how to juggle in college in about 1975. And at about that point, uh, the Fisherman's Wharf area was making a transition from being tourist stuff from be, excuse me from it made a transition from being commercial stuff right. to being tourist An stuff actual working wharf yeah and also in the early 70s this thing called the renaissance pleasure fair started happening and that was actually the first job that i had so uh, i learned how to juggle in college a guy who eventually became my juggling partner a guy named Kit Trueblood taught a juggling class at lunchtime at San Francisco State. I learned how to juggle from him. And at that point, there was also a Sunday juggling freestyle class workshop in Golden Gate Park. And there were like a whole bunch of people that were learning how to juggle at that point. And in about 1975, in the early spring, some friends of ours who are now called the Mum Brothers, they came to everybody all excited, say, oh my God, you guys will never believe this. There's this thing called the Renaissance Fair and they're actually paying us to juggle. And so a whole bunch of us got enthused and started working at the, uh, the Renaissance Fair. And who were some of the people that you were juggling with down at the Golden Gate Park? What are some names that we might know even still working today? Uh, let's see, so in the original group... Fly-by-night? Fly-by-night came a little bit later. Okay. Uh, they, I met uh, one of the starters of Fly-by-night, uh, Michael Godot. He went to uh, uh, the College of Marin, and he had like a juggling club at, uh, at the College of Marin. So I met him eh, probably about 78, uh, 79. And we kind of all, a lot of us were very enthused about juggling. It was... You have to understand, this is in the days before the internet, where if you wanted to uh, pursue your passion, you had to actually get out of the house <laughs> and go someplace else to where other people gathered. I know it's an alien concept, but that's how we did it back then. I have a little tidbit there. In 1978, I, I wasn't living here then, but I was passing through San Francisco, and I pulled into Golden Gate Park. It was Sunday. And I started juggling by the conservatory or something. Yeah, conservatory. And all of a sudden, uh, that's the first time I met John Park, Michael Goudot, Frank Miles, and who, who's the other guy? Uh, uh, Robert Lynn. Robert Lynn, yeah. Robert Lynn. And they were all fly by night. They were all fly by well, night. Well, there was four of them. They, they were all like 17, 16. Then I was like 23, and it was like, we're just juggling, and that's how I met him. And that actually was one of the the, uh, the inspirations of me returning to San Francisco. And did you know Homer Stack? He was kind of a I knew Homer. original yes. guy here, very, very influential in the San Francisco scene. Absolutely. Homer Stack was an amazing man. He was like 90 years old in the early 80s, and I went to his house a few times. In my closet, I can show you, I have a Homer Stack 1920s fiberglass walking ball. Oh, which wow. I've had all these years. I never did the walking ball. But uh, Homer Stack is a major person. And who was Homer Stack? He was he. An, I never met him. Was he, was he an a mid-level? He was a juggler. Juggler. He would have uh, go into his house. I think it was in Burlingame. Yes, Burlingame. Burlingame. Yeah, took the train I down to, a couple of times. Yeah, and he. Can he show you his pictures? Yes. Yeah, so he he would set up 
uh, he would set up film days. Several of us would go down to his house and he had like a high eight and you know various other uh, films and he'd show films of uh, of uh, classic jugglers. But you know what he also did with me, he took me in his garage and he had like these old Harry Lynn clubs, the wood ones, the really valuable little antiques. And he was, uh, he showed me a picture, he goes, see this guy there? That's the first guy who ate the apple. <laughs> Stuff like that. Oh but yeah, he was But he was the early days of vaudeville, and he was like a, a remnant of those days, and he yeah. was very legitimate. He lived quite quite old. He was right. he, into his 90s, or? 90s, Not, oh, absolutely 90s. 90s, and he was a pure juggler kind of guy. And what uh, what jugglers do you remember seeing? Would you see Bobby May, or Francis Brunn, or anybody uh, so, stand out? Yeah, said, Bob, Lottie Brunn. Lottie Brunn, yeah. Mitchell, what year did you get to San Francisco, and what year did you start performing at Pier 39? I arrived June 8th, 1982. On June 11th, 1982, I went down to the pier. For people who don't, don't know, the pier had, has a history of leadership. Robert Nelson was the first coordinator. What do you mean by leadership? Would be the person who scheduled? There's someone who scheduled all I got the you. shows and things. And I, I was kind of blind. I went in there, and I, and I auditioned. And Michael Riga auditioned me, and I was the first act that he ever hired on the pier. He, he brought me in as a, uh, what would you classify me then, as a stage one substitute or something? I wasn't on the main stage for two weeks. Because they had a years. system where you had to be like an alternate first before right. you, you had to work a regular. Your way in. Right. And in those days, it was like uh, there was American Dream, Scott Melson, John Park. There was High, High Street Circus, Andrew Cole, and Wheeler Potter. There was Twist and Shout, David Gomez, and. Uh, and Henrik Bach. Henrik. It was, a, it was a very heady time. And were you working solo or were you working with your team? In those then? days I was working with Ollie the Wonder Dog. Okay, so we have a, a lot of things in common because all of us had partners. You started with the Wonder Dog, but then you also teamed up with a, a female uh, eventually, Yeah, I eventually uh, replaced the dog with Katrina. I'm kidding. Uh, Ollie passed away in 1985. And in 1986 I met Katrina and perhaps some people here old enough to remember Grin and Barrett. That's who we were. From so you were Grin and Barrett, and so you, your right. partner was named? Katrina Grin. And you are Mitchell, Mitchell Barrett. Barrett right. Together you were Grin, Grin and Barrett. Barrett. Yeah. And you were the Juggling Mismos, is that right, Fred? The Juggling Mismos. Uh, we wanted a title that sounded circusy. So. <laughs> and did you start as a team as well at the pier, or were you a solo first? Uh, team. I started with uh, this gentleman, Kit Trueblood. We started performing, our first shows were at the Renaissance Fair. And we did that for a season, and then we also saw that people were doing shows on the street at, in Fisherman's Wharf. And we started doing shows outside this shopping center called The Cannery, and eventually we got the courage and gumption to actually audition to perform on the stage that was inside The Cannery. Uh, the Cannery is uh, a like a hundred and some odd year old brick building, used to be a, a cannery for uh, vegetables and stuff and it was redone into shops and restaurants. One of the very first sort of festival marketplaces like you see all over the country now. There's um, now Faneuil Hall, there's the South Street Seaport, uh, there's the Harbor Place. I think in New Orleans they have a, a seawalk. And uh, the Canary was one of the first, right? Now Fred, you did a couple World Expos. Yeah. Where, where did those take place and what other jugglers did you meet out there? I did two of them. I did the one in Canada in 86, Expo 86, and the one in Australia in 88. And were there a lot of other performers at that time? Yes. It was astonishing. <laughs> they basically searched the street performing scene all over the world and brought all of the people wow. from the whole scene. So, uh, Who stands out in your memory? 
Uh, let's see, well my roommates uh, were uh, Derek Scott, who is a mime and a director. He directed uh, with uh, Cirque du Soleil for a while. He was uh, one of the cast members in a thing called the Slava Snow Show. Mm -hmm. Which still goes on today. Yeah, very good performer. And uh, Lee Ross, who is a mime who became a stand-up comedian, and he's also now a uh, filmmaker. Wasn't he also a clown with uh, Cirque du Soleil? Also with Cirque du Soleil. He may be the only mime to ever become a stand-up comedian because they don't talk, right? They don't talk. They don't talk, but, but he, he, did, uh, he did this great thing where, where he would do a verbal version of following. So for a while, the, the big thing with mimes was you would follow behind people and mimic them. Robert Shields? Robert Shields got super famous for that. But what Lee Ross would do is he'd sit there with a microphone and a Maxi Mouse. Yes, we're old. Maxi Mouse, look it up on it the used to be one of the best speaker systems for street performance. Yeah. So he was narrating. Yeah, and he, was narr he, would like, he would basically sit there, and as people would walk by, he would narrate their inner monologue. Sounds funny. It was very funny, very good. Now, speaking of funny, people always talk about Robin Williams being around this time, being a mime or being uh, like a, maybe another follow act. Did any of you have any uh, run-in with Robin Williams in the early I, days? Uh, I never I saw him performing on the street. He would perform in front of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And that's, uh, that's where I saw also uh, Lee Ross and uh, I think Master Lee. Mm -hmm. from uh, from New York performed there a bit. With Robin Williams, I remember in, I think, 82 or 83, he was sort of planning on doing a movie about street performing. And then he, uh, I think he contacted the Pier 39 office. He wanted to interview a lot of us street performers. And I remember personally making an appointment with him at one of the restaurants on, on Pier 39. And we just, like, sat down and had lunch. Uh, and I do remember one little anecdote. A, a kid comes over to the table. This is 1982, 83. And he wants an autograph, so I just grabbed it out of his hand. I, I wrote down Ronald Reagan and gave it back to him, and I made Robin Williams laugh. Uh, so I was, I'm very proud of that moment. Nice. Thank you. Nice. And speaking of another funny gentleman, one of the kings of the pier at a certain time was Robert Nelson, the butterfly man. Yes. Let's go around the table. What was your first memory of Robert Nelson, and was he a, a person you considered a friend, or...? A competitor? What, what was your take on the, the famous Butterfly Man? Well, Robert came out of this area. Yeah. And uh, we knew Robert. We, we didn't call him Butterfly. We called him Robert. Mm -hmm. I must have watched thousands of his shows. And I, I would just have to say that uh, I, I first saw him when I first arrived in San Francisco in 82. I got approved on the pier. I did an audition. Then I'm starting walking around seeing what the other stages got. And I, the first show I ever saw was Robert Nelson. And he blew me off the map. And I said to myself, that's what I want to aspire to. He just, he was just absolutely funny and amazing and had a big hat and everything. He was everything yeah. I wanted to be. He was definitely a force of nature. The only, the only other performer I've ever seen with that kind of raw power was a stand-up comic in New York named Charlie Barnett. Oh, the, now, fi the fireman? No. No, he was a stand-up comedian. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was, uh, I think the story about him was he was uh, auditioning for Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and he he couldn't read fast enough to uh, to deal with cue cards. Huh. Yeah. So, so but he, he was very popular and had huge crowds around the fountain yeah. in Washington Square Park. He was he was a powerhouse. The first time I saw him probably was in 1979. Me, I my partner at the time, Kit Trueblood, and a juggler from Los Angeles named John Looker. Mm -hmm. We went to a jugglers convention in uh, New York. Per I think it was Purchase. 
Yeah, I was there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So on the way out, at that point, my mom worked for the Hilton Hotel chain. So on the way out, we flew out. We stayed at a hotel, uh, the Hilton Hotel in New York City, and we'd run out and do street shows during the day. So we're, you know, these dirtbag street performers staying in like this fancy schmancy hotel. We saw a bunch of acts. We met, oh God, I'm spacing on his name right now. Uh, we met a, um, a really great street magician who sort of took us under his wing and he showed us all the spots. So we went to Washington Square Park, uh, saw Charlie, uh, and then we went along 6th Avenue, showed us a couple of performing spots on 6th Avenue, and then we went over to 7th Avenue to a place called Sheridan Square. Ah, the magician. Jeff Sheridan. Jeff Sheridan. Jeff Sheridan. The magician's yeah. name was Jeff Sheridan. Yeah. So this place called Sheridan Square was where the tightrope walker Philippe Petit performed. Mm. And that was, uh, I stole a hat move from him literally 35 years ago and I still can't do it as well as he did it. It's amazing. He was amazing. He was doing his like chalk line show. Then. Yeah, so yeah. what he would do is he would draw an, just a beautiful circle uh, with chalk. He was very strict with his audience. He didn't talk much. I didn't think he talked at all. And he would like, you know, gesture for the people to put their toes right on the chalk line. Bam, right on the chalk line. And he would do a really charming show with juggling He'd get like a kid and interacted with a kid with what, a little bit of juggling. Was this after or before his World Trade Tower? After the after, after the walk. Okay. That's when and I then know. he would uh, had a tightrope and he'd get up on the tightrope and uh, juggle uh, and juggle. I think it was uh, probably clubs or knives on the tightrope. You know, but he was. In that uh, era, I was doing was high wire myself. I, right, you were a, a, also a wire I, walker. I just went up high a few times, and I met Philippe in the late seventies after his World Trade Tower walk. And I looked at him. I'm like six feet tall. He's like four eleven. I go, well, yeah. He's a tiny. He's a tiny guy. Yeah. How high was your highest walk that you did? Uh, Forty five feet without a net and without a pole. Inside though, I, I could never handle winds. So mm -hmm. I was just too big. So I just kind of walked it. I didn't do tricks or anything. I just kind of went across it. And Let's get back to the San Francisco scene a little bit. So back in the early days, Robert Nelson also scheduled. Uh, how was he as a... Uh, <laughs> right, because I heard that he sort of took all the good spots. Well, yeah. I arrived right after he lost that position. And I'll let these guys tell you how that went. Um, for, for, for a couple of years, he was the scheduler, and he gave himself the best time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, was, he was the best show. But, and he was the best show. Yeah. <laughs> I, remember, I remember going, you know, going working on the Pierce stage, and you could hear him and his crowd from a block away. And, and he has this sort of distinctive nasal voice. And walking up to the pitch, you would hear, He was a force. I'll tell you though, yeah, the, the hardest act very, I ever had. He was very interactive. So very he would, interactive. So most of us were presentationalists. Like, hey, everybody, I'm going to show you this. Right. And Robert would be, you, with yeah. the cowboy hat. Yeah. What do you think about this that I'm going to do? And, and you, with the bandana, what do you think about what the cowboy hat guy said? And he would, he would get this uh, conversation going between himself and the audience. And it was funny. And he was really funny. And really brilliant at it. And it was new. And the none, none of the rest of us were as good as he was at no. that interactive style. Although I have to say, the hardest act on Pier 39 that I had to follow was not Robert. It was Frank Olivier. 
in the early 80s before he went to Broadway. He, he was just a, the another powerhouse, hard guy to follow. Just uh, in the evening, because there were only a half hour between shows, you get the same audience. They were sort of tired of laughing right. after Frankie. And was he doing that tall unicycle with yes. the, the torch juggling? Correct. And the rumor was that he was sort of the first person to do that with the volunteers, uh, helping him up on the unicycle. So he says. So he says. And then he went, I think, to Europe, and then like he came back and everybody was doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Frankie may have had, had, had some claim to that. I just think in my own brain, riding a unicycle and juggling fire is kind of a natural parallel development sort of thing. I think it was more having the volunteers and getting so much comedy from having them help you upon the unicycle. And he was just brilliant. He still is brilliant. Still is brilliant. Yeah, He's still one of the brilliant. guys I need to get on the podcast. Has not been on yet, but still a force, still performing. Yeah, he's so, actually, uh, he's actually uh, switched over and he's become a very... Very innovative and good uh, magician now. So in those days, the three probably strongest acts in the early days. Uh, American Dream came on later. Yeah. I would say Twist and Shout. Yeah. They're, they're a little bit later. Day, right? Yeah. And what about uh, Michael Davis? When did he enter the scene and what were your impressions of... About of 79, 80. He went from being lame to the best thing around in about six months. By lame, you just mean unexperienced, and how did you think he, he was it, able to go from sort of first, being a beginner to for the, the first, force he is? Uh, for the first month, he didn't click, and then it clicked, and it was just like a rocket to the moon. He had this beautiful deadpan presentation that was really, really nice. He would perform not at Pier 39. He performed at this other shopping mall, which, which is called the Cannery, and it had this really beautiful situation on uh, Friday and Saturday evenings. Also beautiful acoustics, right? Yeah, beautiful acoustics. It was quiet. Uh, it was this sunken courtyard with like little twinkly lights. And what would happen is people would come off of the cable cars. Uh, there was a cable car uh, drop-off point uh, at Fisherman's Wharf. People would walk along this upper street, and there was a puppet act named Bob Hartman and he would uh, switch off with the people on the stage. So yeah. uh -huh. the top of the stairs into the shopping center had like a little alcove where a puppet act could perform. Yeah, it was beautiful. When did Michael Davis enter the San Francisco scene, and what were your memories of him? Uh, he started, I think, maybe 78, 79. He started wow. working with a partner named Greg Dean, who's now you know, a, a writer of a comedy instructor. He's a comedy coach. Comedy coach. And comedy Greg coach. Dean was called the Obscene Juggler. Yes. And he was one of the first jugglers I saw at the Renaissance Fair. Yes. With the same fair where John Luker was also working. Yes. So it's a, it's a small world. Small world. I just yeah. played poker with, with Greg Dean. You did? did Good yeah. for you. I just Good saw him you. a couple Where, down in Los Angeles, or was he up no, here? No, he, he came up here a couple oh. of weeks ago. Unbelievable. Cool. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, so so Mike and Greg they started out as a team act. They had come from uh, the circus, mm -hmm. Ringling uh, Brothers, Brothers Circus School. Ringling Brothers Circus School. Greg went back down to Los Angeles, moved down there. Mike stayed up here. In a, in a period of like a few months, went from not connecting with the audience to being the best thing out here. It was astonishing. And what do you attribute that to? Just sort of reading the audience, sort of learning as he went. Uh, what made him so good? Uh, both reading the audience and learning as he went and being incredibly talented. He is incredibly talented. My opinion of, of, of him is um, he just, he has perfect execution. You know, Mike, Mike Davis, he just, ex his execution is perfect. And he probably had that from the beginning and very disciplined and he's just smart. 
And also there was Funny. another performer who was a juggler, started as a juggler, and went on to be on Saturday Night Live. A. Whitney Brown. A. Whitney Brown. A. Whitney Brown, who someday wants to be THE Whitney Brown. All right, that was his big opening joke? Yeah, yep. that was the opening joke. But he was, was he really a juggler, or was he more of like a, a comedian who did some juggling? I didn't know him. He had a, a train, he started his show with a, a dog sitting on a chair with glasses and a hat. What was the dog's name? I don't remember. It had a kind of famous name that we can't I remember. I don't remember. Yeah. It was a lovable dog. Yeah. So he would, you know, see, so he, he did in his show sort of goofy goofy clown stunts, juggling, and uh, trained dog stuff. So, you know, he, he, did, he did a whole bunch of uh, stuff with his dog where the dog would, you know, run through his legs or jump through a, a, a ring that he formed with his hands. Yeah. And he finished with a uh, stand-up comedy sort of juggling juggling piece. I did dog stuff. It's and like, how were the hats back then? Were they comparable to now? Were they better than they are now? Because at a certain time that these venues started to close down and now only Pure 39 only still Pure exists. 39. Why did they stop being so thriving and why is there only one venue left for street performers here in, this, in the city? I, I have a little opinion on that. Um, I think um, Pure 39 managed to change the transit routes so that all the streetcars and everything were dropping off in front of Pier 39 and not down on the wharf. And so they kind of bled the Anchorage and the Cannery and Ghirardelli Square slowly suffocated over the years, I think. Don't you think? Yeah, slowly suffocated. Also, the shopping centers changed uh, their focus. They went from festival marketplace shopping centers to now, uh, let's see, one of them is a condo hotel. Right, Ghirardelli. Ghirardelli, uh, timeshare hotel, very expensive. And What happened to the Anchorage? The Anchorage is of uh, like more offices. And for those of you wondering what the Anchorage was, if you're, ever, if you're ever there at that time, it was kind of a the only amphitheater stage. And you can get the, the biggest crowd there if, if you were able to together the crowd it was a hard crowd gather yeah but once it was you got it, it was really tremendous. really pretty pretty stage yeah um and the the cannery is now i think it's uh classrooms or dorms for uh, an art college really i didn't yeah. even know that and even the stage at pier 39 is in a different location than it oh, was yeah. back in what you yeah. call the glory days yeah it switched like three or four times yeah it's in a uh, little i mean there have been some tremendous shows in the back where it is now People it's also play. more open to the elements, a lot more wind. Yeah, it's windier yeah, and it's colder. Much more colder. Like it, originally, it was kind of in the middle of the pier mm -hmm. in a plaza that had a, a balcony. balcony all around With all, flowers on the all, all, all four sides. Right. Basically, people uh, coming in from either side, either leaving the pier, they go, oh, let's watch this before we go, or people just getting onto the pier. So, oh, look at this. And we had a perk that we don't have today, the people who work on the pier today. We were able to drive onto the pier, park behind the stage. Not the pier itself, but you could come around the side of it. Uh, around the well, side. It was all, yeah the, yeah, the road that's going around the pier. Right. That has access to all the pier. But you could park basically right behind the stage area. Absolutely. Robert used to park his red Volkswagen van there all the time. And what do you remember about there being a juggling store at a certain point? Yeah. Right above that stage. Neil yeah. Stammer. Neil, Neil Stammer, Stammer ran it. It was called the Juggling Capital, I believe. Yeah, I believe Neil's in prison now. Uh, yeah, so Neil's has run into some trouble. He had a magic store in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, some sort of... And he became a uh, fugitive from justice. Correct. Uh -huh. And they and found him with fate. He was living in Nepal illegally. Yeah, he was living and in Nepal. And they used Peru. Or and the FBI somehow sent to the Nepal authorities 
facial recognition technology, and they just happened to, that's how they caught him. They never would have yeah, caught him. He was on the lam for 14 years. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And now I think he's probably in prison. And for those of who don't know, Neil Stammer was a very talented juggler. Well, I have a, I had a special relationship with Neil. I knew him in Tucson. You know, when I was hanging out with Barrett Felker, mm -hmm. I was like 23. This one guy, Dixon White, he was the our leader, our hub. He had a big circus truck. He was teaching all of us. And uh, during those days, Barrett Felker was there, Jim Strinker, and also Andrew Allen, mm -hmm. who later became Neil Stammer. Yeah, he'd gone to Germany. He became friendly with the Bruns. He, he and was blowing everybody away at a young age yeah. there in Tucson. For example, he'd do devil sticks, but he'd, he'd treat his devil sticks like cigar boxes. No one was doing that. He was very fast, sort of very a very fast, yeah, dynamic very, juggler. Just seven very balls, fast. no problem. And, and in those days, that, that was something else. You know? But he was troubled, and uh, one of his troubles led to his imprisonment and now yeah, some sort of child yeah there, there are some issues that if people want to look up they can look up but we're not really going to get into him yeah, too I'd deep on not. the podcast itself yeah but there have been some characters in juggling over the years we were talking before about a another juggler that unfortunately uh, had a very tragic end was donya ray smith who's a name that Ray Smith, yeah. He was a, a African-American juggler. He was a huge man. He was like 5'10", 350 pounds of yeah. solid muscle. Yeah, total muscle. And he specialized in doing uh, strength things. He would juggle bowling he, balls and he could do five. I think he's the only one five in the history bowling of the balls. Real bowling balls. Yes. 16 pounds. He would say, <laughs> these ain't eight pounds. These are 16 pound balls. And yeah. he'd throw them in the air. He goes, how about a hand clap? <laughs> And uh, he would catch the fifth ball after a, a pattern of five 16-pound bowling balls. He catched the last one on his neck. That's how powerful he was. But unfortunately, that also led to his demise because the story is that he was found in a field surrounded well, um, by bowling balls. The mystery of, of Ray's death uh, persisted for decades. Because he was suddenly, he was there, he was kind of around, he was at a cable car. He came to an IJ festival and competed. In 82, 81, yeah. uh, he, no, no, sorry, 86. 86. I think it was the one in, maybe the one in San Jose. San, I, I was there with him. 86. I, I saw him there, I was there, because that's where I, I took Katrina for the first time, mm -hmm. before we were working together. And so there were all kinds of terrible rumors about what happened to Ray, like everything from he died in a car accident to he's in jail for rape and terrible things. And finally, uh, uh, decades later, I'm having lunch with this one very kind of a famous street performer guy, Jerry Salazar. And he, Jerry actually, he, he, he suffers from, uh, uh, what is that syndrome? So he doesn't talk Tourette's, too much. Tourette's a little bit? A, a, a little bit. He's not overly talkative. So he kept it to himself all these years. But he told me the story of Ray, and he was doing five bowling balls in practice at Aquatic Park, which is right across the street from the cannery. And uh, he did the head catch, and he missed, and he... It hit him in the head and died instantly. And yeah, Jerry it's, actually it's said that he concussion. Attended, yeah, well, 16-pound bowling ball hitting you in the head from the high in the air. I think there's a couple of stories in history of jugglers dying, uh, attempting stunts with the bowling ball. We've talked about San Francisco. We've talked about sort of how it evolved from uh, many different pitches to just basically the Pier 39. And Fred, you're still working out at the Pier. Uh, yep. And what year did you retire, Mitchell? 2011, when I had a spinal surgery. And you were juggling and you felt at a certain point uh, a numbness in your hands? Or how did you know, or how did this sort of illness manifest that required you to retire eventually? I, I, I sort of went from, uh, you know, because I, I always thought that I would, you know, that there's, that there's an old joke. Uh, you start off with acrobatics, right. get a little older, go into juggling, 
get a little older, maybe you go into magic, a little, <laughs> just a table in front of you. you know, sure. Then when you're really old, you do puppets. And I felt, you know, that I was on my juggling stage from the acrobatics. I did high wire early, a lot of rope walking tricks. Got a little older, didn't do those anymore. I, I was still walk on the rope and juggle, but I went through the fancy stuff. But that's where I was at when I had a neck pain one day, sitting in my bedroom, and it didn't go away. I tried to ride it out, and a week later I had to go to the hospital. I had a, had a really severe spinal issue, and they had to put it in a titanium bar. To Into your neck? into my neck to prevent paralysis. And I've come back from a lot of things, but I, I wasn't able to come back from that one. I didn't feel robbed. I was 58 and I was getting old anyway. And you had quite a career with your partner. Oh yeah. Let's talk about your, your work as a duo. Oh yeah. And give me some highlights of working with Katrina and, <laughs> and what she was like to work with and what were some of the jobs you really enjoyed doing with her? Well, the great story of Katrina, we have a million stories, but I think one of my favorite was uh, the first gig I got her because I, I worked with her for two years. We were in Australia. She was kind of helping me. In the Where show. were you in? Australia? Australia. We oh, okay. went to Europe. Katrina's from Denmark. We visited her country. We did street shows. She was kind of helping me and slowly learning. Then uh, two years later, she moves to America. So she sort of started as your assistant? Well, she started as my student. Okay. Just like you were the mentor. And... Just traveling with me around Europe and helping me out and everything. But she was also learning and practicing. She eventually, by the way, footnote, became a much better juggler than I ever was. And so. at a certain point, I remember your finale was like she'd be on a six-foot unicycle. Correct. You'd be on the slack rope. Correct. And, and you'd pass... Six torches. Six torches back and forth. Back and forth. And uh, we'd do a kind of a high catch at the end of it. And I would pretend to fall and make myself back on the rope. Kind of like what, what Frankie did on his unicycle mm -hmm. in the early days. So, uh, yeah, but the best story of that is the first gig I ever really got her with me, Grin and Barrett's first gig, was in Japan for Artland, the first year of Artland. So we went to Japan. What was, what was Artland? Artolando. How would you explain that? It, just... it was a, uh, a promotions company that provided basically street performing entertainment to festivals and... In Japan and uh, uh, shopping malls and stuff in Japan. So we learned our entire show in Japanese. We actually found a Japanese juggler who spoke English and he, was, he can translate the comedy, the idioms, and we actually did that. But the best thing about it was, after our first show there, Yoshiko, who is the, the owner of Artolando, Artland, comes up and goes, what are you doing? I go, well, we're doing a show. It was a good show, wasn't it? Yeah, but she says, you didn't pass your hat. Oh. And I, we said, well, because you're, you're paying us, <laughs> we're right. getting like 60,000 yen a day, sure. 30,000 yen each, about 100, 150, but it was like for five weeks. She goes, oh, no, no, I want you to do what I saw you do in San Francisco. So what she did was she got three beautiful young teenage Japanese girls to come out on the stage after our show and just talk to the audience in Japanese about how if they don't donate to us, uh, they will insult us. <laughs> okay. So we did five shows a day, five and a half weeks. We came home with about $20,000 each. We didn't even care about the money they were paying us sure. on the contract. And uh, right after that year, though, they entered that policy. So we really lucked out. Me, lucked out. Robert actually got part of that. A butterfly was in uh, Guruka. We were in Osaka. So, yeah, that was uh, her first gig. And the, the footnote to that is that was the highest paying gig we ever had in our 17th career, the first one. It was downhill from there. But you guys did cruises, you did oh, fairs, yeah. you, you had a pretty pretty extensive We career. did a lot of court. You know, we did what the Vespinis did, perhaps on a, a slightly lower level. You know, uh, we well, did we were corporate. contemporaries. We would, we, yeah. One of the first well, we matches other... I saw was you and Katrina right. at the Anchorage when I would come up to visit my sister. Well, Dan, we know each other for 
over three decades. Yeah, well, I mean, same with me and Fred. Absolutely. We go way back. This is our. This is what we're all from here. So uh, yeah. So now eventually, though, you your act disbanded, and now she's working with uh, Scotty, Scotty Meltzer. Meltzer. Yeah, with Comedy Industries. Comedy Industries. And she's still working. And now, do you feel that Scotty somehow usurped her? Or? No. <laughs> no, no. Gina and I, we uh, accomplished most of our goals. The only one we never accomplished was to get on like Leno, Lenneman, or Carson. We didn't make that. You did that, right, Dan? Uh, yeah, well, not by myself. I, I... But that was one of our goals which she didn't achieve. But, but we, Trina wanted to, you know, she only worked with me her whole career. Right. And I kind of had a, I, I, I had an interesting career before Katrina. And she just said, I think it's time for me to try new things. And I completely agree. 17 years is a long time to work together. And to this day, we're still the closest of friends and we're like family. So. Well, she's hard not to be a, a friend with because she's a very good person. Oh, yeah. Very easy person to like. Oh, Scotty Meltzer. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Well, Scotty, Scotty, you know. Now, Scotty also has, has taken the role as the organizer of the pier. And he does a fantastic right. job. Without Scotty Meltzer, the pier 39 program would not be there. Probably not. And yeah. one thing Scotty does is after the pier meeting, there's a pier meeting every month, he takes all the performers out to lunch. Uh huh. And he always treats everybody to lunch. Since 1987, Yay. once a month, <laughs> Scotty, I think the pier pays him. 300 so they, or something. They pay him something, but he probably spends it all on our lunch. So what he does was every month, this is every month since 1987, I actually, I'm going to tell you how much I calculated he spent over the years, but he would take everyone out to a restaurant on the pier, pay for everything, and it was like, because he didn't need the money, he was he had money coming in from other places. And I actually totaled up, which he, Scotty said, I don't want to hear it, but I made him hear it, $72,000. Right, just out of his own generosity, nothing makes him do that. Out of his pocket, so that know, is a that, lot of crab salads. <laughs> and when Katrina yeah. and I split up, and right. that's all good, she ended up with Scotty, which made me feel good because I actually have a lot of respect for Scotty as a performer. I thought he was actually better than I was. And had she ended up with some bum, I would have been... And the market they're in now is a very lucrative one. They do a lot of trade shows. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's, she's and doing Scotty's great. excellent at writing custom scripts. Let's be honest. She's doing a lot better with him than she was with me. But Grin and Barrett was fun. Now, what about this idea of the hat money, like you're talking about the tips back in Japan, that nowadays the tips seem to be kind of comparable, meaning that back in the 80s, someone thought a good tip would be a dollar or five dollars. Well, in the early 80s, people were doing the dollar lines, like Ray Jason's line would be, whenever you can, I appreciate silent donations. I think you did a line, Fred, where like you didn't want to like the sound. No, it was, it was fly by night, fly by, by night. night. They would do a whole thing about, you know, if you like the comedy part of our show, fold the dollars face out. If you like the juggling part, fold them face in. If you, if you didn't like our show, don't fold the bill, don't but do fold the vote. Bill, but do vote. <laughs> but do vote. Yeah. And there was always a line like, uh, we don't care what you, you drop in just as long as you can And so we were going for the dollar bills in those days. Right. Early and then sometime around 85, 86, Scotty Meltzer, I think was the first, and John Park, they decided to target the $5 bills. Which uh, he would he would give away a five dollar bill to a kid every show at the end as a visual suggestion, and it worked, and so we all started doing it. Yeah, <laughs> right? and now it's more of like trying to target the, the tens and the twenties. Tens and twenties. Uh, yeah. Well, I know yeah. I'm, I'm not going to mention it, but I know guys who get hundreds now almost every sure. show. Sure, it's, it's almost really, every show. And plus, they have Venmo, where they can just wire people. That's over becoming there. more. Are you doing that yet, Fred? Or are you doing yeah, the? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so you can pay. You can pay either with cash or with your. Uh, your credit card it's all changed phone app. yeah so how many do you think eventually people will not have much cash on them at all it'll go oh, cashless yes. oh yeah I, I notice a lot of hipsters 
either don't carry cash or claim they don't carry cash. Let's talk about hats and hat earning, though. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, because we see some acts, even at the pier, even now, who can get huge crowds and are making sometimes three or four times as much as some of the other performers. Oh, yeah. What do you think well, lends well, itself to be these big hats and why are some performers getting them and some performers aren't? Is it I, I purely show word. quality? Height. 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 I think, yeah, that's a big new thing. I mean, I don't know, uh, 10, 15 years ago, people started doing stuff uh, with platforms and instead of doing one stunt on the tall unicycle, you'd do three or four. And so now there are people that make, I mean, you know, take what I make as a juggler standing on the... Uh, on the ground, and somebody who's up on a platform doing uh, an extended piece. I, th I think mathematically, make you like reach three, more four, people, five times right? as much as a yeah. But in the pier, though, it's like they, they have a good vision no matter yeah. where they're sitting. Yeah. Is it also maybe the danger aspect? They, the danger people aspect. People yeah. want to reward yeah. something they consider oh, dangerous yeah. more than something they consider funny. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, it, height is more dangerous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just the difference between doing a show with or without fire juggling will make a noticeable difference. In how much you make. Now they've had some new rules though at the pier. One is you can't have a volunteer on stage while you're doing fire. Yeah, yeah, um, and you know we have to work around that so instead of uh, with the tall stuff you would get on the unicycle or on the tightrope or on the big tall wiggly thing and then you would have like a, a like a cool kid volunteer pick up your props and you do like a bunch of comedy about them not being able to reach you when they're handing it to you. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, you can't you can't do that anymore because they're scared of you know like uh, legal liabilities. With, I did a version with of that. that. And you. so you just have to figure out. Well, yeah, if I put my torches up here, I can get them myself. Right, right. And you just can't light them until the volunteers have left the yes, stage. Yes, yes, correct. It's one of the drawbacks of uh, the uh, the mall stages that you will have more regulations than you will on the ocean. Street. And they seem to be uh, at the pier, there's always some conflicts maybe with the shop owners. There's been some Never times ending. where people thought the shows were too loud. And it's, it's tough to be in a situation where you're making money and you're not paying rent or you're not somehow contributing the same way a shop owner is. Right, but think about how much money we're saving Pier 39 by ha they're having constant professional shows all yeah. day long. That problem is not so much the Pier 39 problem. That's a problem that, that's happened all over the world with street performing. And merchants. Yeah, where if you're in a, an area, you're getting a big crowd and a merchant will go, hey, those people are out there looking at them instead of eating dinner at my restaurant. Right. That's the first, but that's not actually what's occurring. Yeah, and uh, that sort of problem, that problem actually happened in Los Angeles. Where? It, there was an area called Westwood Village where mm -hmm. there was a street performing area. Yeah. The local merchants kind of decided that, gee, this is like weird that those people are out there instead of in, in my restaurant. They started regulating it chased him away. What happened is Westwood Village area went from being a fun, vibrant area to, for street performing to they kicked out the street performers and suddenly the audience didn't want to go there. Good! Well, yeah. the one problem also in Westwood is I used to go see uh, Dan Rosen and Edward Jackman, uh -huh. who were big inspirations oh, to me yeah. when I was oh, starting yeah. out. Ed Jackman was great. Yeah, they had a wonderful team act and they went their separate ways and both had <coughs> solo careers. Is At a certain point they also decided to put up planters. So the one corner that was the best corner, one time we showed up and all of a sudden they ruined it. 
by placing these obstacles. So you, oh, you couldn't get a crowd anymore. You, you do understand they put those planners there because the Merchants Association yes. said, we don't want street performers here anymore. What can you do? Right. That happened here at, uh, at Fisherman's Wharf. There was a an area about a block from Pier 39 where breakdancers used to work and the merchants decided they didn't like the breakdancers so they asked the Wharf Association to do something so they put in uh, landscaping. To the credit of Pier 39 though, we've had a lot of uh, run-ins with different merchants, restaurants and stuff over the years and they have backed us. I, I will give them that. And yes. how long is the program would you say, what year did it actually start at Pier 39? 78, 79. I think it opened in 1978. When Diane Feinstein in a bathing suit, right? Opened it or something. Yep. I, I have a picture of her. In the she was the mayor at the time. She, yep. Yeah, she was in a bathing She was young. And when? what about a person we haven't talked about? What about Ray Jason? He was considered San Francisco's original yeah, uh, juggler, he, street It's performer. a legitimate claim in, in terms of juggling, right? He actually started out doing shows on a like a bar restaurant street called Union Street. There was a, um, a corner that had like an alcove next to a, the ATM of a bank. And it was really tiny by modern alcove? standards. Yeah, it was maybe like uh, the sidewalk, instead of being 15 feet wide, it was 25 feet wide. And he would do these really charming shows on Friday and Saturday night for people, for people going to uh, going to the bars and restaurants, and where all the rest of us were like yelling and trying to do big jokes because well, we, we were we doing from, parodies of Ray. Yeah, well, yeah, we were doing a parody of Ray. Where he we was, were. he was very sort of sincere and serious. Uh huh. Standard, uh, but really yeah. well executed classical. Track. Yeah, he would do like torches blindfolded. He was yeah. very, he was very. Uh, into the idea that everything he did was real, like right. real bowling balls. Right, exactly. I really can't see through the blindfold. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and, and he, he would juggle. He would juggle like a like a knife, a sickle, and a, an axe. And he also had a depth, sharp. He had a depth of character that was believable. Like I don't know how to explain it, but he just had a yeah like, yeah. It was basically he was able to do the Jedi mind control. Yeah, he was very before good at the that. rest of us. Where if somebody walking by, he would be able to say with a straight face. Oh, but about to do a show. It'll be the highlight of your night. Now, I don't think he <laughs> and they, and he had such just like rock solid belief in his character. I like his other people line. said, "Oh, okay, yeah, we'll watch." He'd be blindfolded and the torches in his hand. He goes, "You know, most people like uh, this trick the best. My favorite is the bowling ball." It's not funny. He was just having different. Yeah, he really wasn't doing jokes per se. It was more like a commentary. But you didn't leave. You, you, you were riveted. Yeah. You watched him. He had a great. He had really good hats. He yeah. Was well, it was it was because it was conversational. The rest of us came from the Renaissance Fair, right. where we were yelling, "Looky, looky, looky!" And what did they bring in? Was there always amplification at the pier, or it was first there was no mics? Uh, no no mic. mics. Then we started using our own mics with these little. Uh, battery-operated amps called taxi amps, mm -hmm. and no, there was also before. the can amps. There was the no, it was before the taxi amps. We um, you mean the maxi mouses. Maxi mouse, yes. So we actually started before there were microphones, uh, and a few years in, we started using a thing called a taxi amp and uh, a maxi mouse, which was a battery-operated thing about two times the I size of a bread, one here. bread roll. Yeah, they're, they're still out there. They're hard to get now because they stopped making them. Are they collectible? But they were considered the, the gold Everyone standard the gold standard, yeah. street performing world. I'm not sure what is, what, what's the, the top thing to have now, you think, as far as the the crate or the... Crate, AERs are really good. 
depends on you know how much money you want to spend. I mean, yeah. if you want to spend uh, two or three hundred dollars, you can get one of the smaller things. But they got these giant things that are a thousand, and you could do a street show for five hundred to a thousand people. So the sound system recently went out on Pier Thirty Nine, and you replaced it with your yeah. sound. So what did you Speaker. replace it with? Uh, well, the thing we used to use at the pier, which was, I'm spacing on the name, uh, it was a, it's basically a, an amp for playing music when you have a monitor on stage. It's like a powered stage monitor. I discovered after we transitioned from no mic to mic on Pier 39 that it's a really different show when you have a mic. Sure. You, you can turn around and whisper something and get a laugh. Plus Whereas, you don't blow your voice out. There's a lot of performers who end up sounding like carnies, absolutely. like, come on, everybody! It's a lot more Because they tiring. too much yelling. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, did, I definitely noticed that when one time I tried, I had to do a show uh, without the... Then you could add backing music. It's much more theatrical. And now at the pier, there's a built-in sound system. Correct. You have to bring your own microphone, Correct. your own headset. Yeah, and music and stuff, yeah. But everybody basically uses the same mm -hmm. sound system. It's a nice sound system, too. Yeah. Now, Fred, let's talk about another juggling act, another duo that you told me you met in your travels. Another uh, act that's kind of been lost a little bit. To the waves of history? The waves of history was Dr. Hot and Neon. Uh, Tell me about how you met them, where you were at, and what you felt about them. They were great. They started about the same time we did in the uh, mid to late 70s. You and the Mismos. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it was Bill Galvin and, and Steve, Steve Mock. Mock. Bill yeah. Galvin and Steve Mock. They started here in San Francisco, and then they left to go to Europe and, you know, have adventures in Europe. And they and never came back. They never came back. And they, and they kind of disappeared. really good. They disappeared. Just Marcus Marconi. Yeah. They well, Marcus Marconi disappeared because, unfortunately, he passed, passed away. away. But before yeah. that, he went to Europe and wasn't coming back because he became a pretty big Yeah, unfortunately, the story of Marcus Marconi, we'll get back to yeah, Dr. Yeah, Hot and yeah, Another performer that, unfortunately, is not as known as uh, from uh, back in the day. He was a very good street performer. He had traveled good, to Europe. Very good juggler, too. Very good juggler. But unfortunately, he suffered from asthma. Yes. And he was in the oh, dead of winter in Germany, yes. living like in a van, and had an asthma attack. I have such fond memories of him. He was known, we called him the infinite crasher. Because he would he would stay in people's houses. And guess who let him in my house? When I went to Europe to work with Katrina the first time, the right. trip, uh, he stayed in my apartment. And like two weeks before I'm coming home, I call up Marcus, I'm coming back. He goes, okay. And he's from Hawaii, really mellow. <laughs> a big man, like a Samoan yeah, kind yeah, of body, right. but mellow. And uh -huh. So I come home with my suitcase after five and a half weeks in Europe. And there he is. He's still <laughs> infinitely crashing in my bedroom. And it was kind of funny because that's... He was known as the yeah. He would do like a pressure. routine with a chicken, like a da oh, like yeah. devil stick it to make it like dance. He, on he the, taught me how to pass. He taught me how to do seven eight clubs. Yeah, he was a very good juggler and also very uh, came to a lot of the early IG conventions in the eighties. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he was mellow as the day is long. Yeah, a very good hat juggler, very good yeah. passer, yeah, really good. Didn't have really a lot of over success in America. He but did he was very early in his career as well. He yeah, there were a bunch of people that started here in the United States and left to go to uh, became, Europe became and did, Europe. did really well in Europe. Marcus was huge. Yeah. Let's talk a little more about Dr. Hot and Neon because wh where did you, did you work with them or where did you, where did you uh, pass see, so uh, they, they started here in San Francisco, then they left to go to Europe and me and my partner Kit in, I think it was 1979 or 80, we got hired to do a tour of uh, Saudi Arabia for the oil company. Wow. It was pretty, in 1980? pretty crazy, right when the Iraq-Iran war was wow. starting. Pretty darn crazy. So uh, we routed our trip. So on the way out, we did a week at the Cleveland Comedy Club. And so we basically routed our airfare. So a week in the Cleveland Comedy Club, 
off to uh, good warm to, up for Saudi Arabia. Good warm up for Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it's a little weird going from snow to 95 degree heat. That was a little spooky. So we were there for about two weeks, and then we routed our return. We stopped in uh, Munich, Germany, and we had gave ourselves like two weeks off, and we did uh, street performing in Europe. We went to uh, Munich, we went to Switzerland, we took the train all around Switzerland. How was the scene then? Was there a lot of street performers in Europe then? Oh, uh, let's see. Well, it was November, so not, not that many people. Okay. But, it, you know, you we're looking at this going, oh, this could be really good. And then we were in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, and we, we, you know, as we're staying in a youth hostel, we asked them, hey, where do you go to see street performers? And they said, go to this street here. And we go to the street, and it's sort of a nightlife street with uh, bars and strip clubs. But it was like this cool European cobblestone street, very pretty. And we're walking along, we find some like broken down drunk guitar player, no teeth. And he said, hey man, where do the Czech colors hang out? I said, yeah, I saw a guy with like a unicycle going up that way. And you know, we walk another half block and then we see this guy and we say, hey, this guy's kind of familiar looking. It's like, holy crap, it's Bill. And you know, and it was this guy, Bill Galvin, who had left San Francisco the year before to uh, be in Europe, and there he was. And he was in Zurich for a couple of days to pick up his van, which was being repaired, because it broke down in the middle of their tour, and he had to leave it there with the repair guy. And he did this just beautiful, charming show, silently, with a lot of cool interaction. And while we're chatting with him, it's November in Europe, and it's drizzling. And while we're chatting with him, people are coming by and very respectful. Excuse, please? Are you the artist? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm the juggler. I'm the, uh, when when will you make the show? And he said, it's going to be uh, just you know, chatting with my friends. It's going to be maybe 15 minutes. Oh, we'll wait. And over the course of about 10 minutes, a dozen couples came by just like that. And by the time we stopped talking, there was a ring of people to start his show. So they gave you good advice. I was just It was great. Yeah, was and so he's doing this wonderful show. And about 20 minutes in, you hear this sort of drunken sort of raucousness coming down the street. And people get close enough to see what's going on. And this girl pipes up, hey, is this the guy that eats fire? Uh, no, he's just a juggler. Let's go. <laughs> and, and at that point, you know, he's doing the silent show. He broke out a character and pointed to us and said, that's why I left America. And then back into the show. Now, people don't know uh, Dr. Ha Neon. They did a very uh, classic routine where they passed banjos. You, it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. Boom. Each banjo is tuned to a different note. They have like, a single string. But they're able to play a song while they're passing six banjos. Didn't Waldo Woodhead have something like that? No, this was a Dr. Hot and Neon. It yeah. was not an original trick because it was done years ago back in like the vaudeville days. Right. But they're the oh, only act that oh. I've ever seen do this. The problem is I think that when you watch it on like a television program, it's hard to not think that the music is being piped in. Yeah. And even in the YouTube clip, the toast is very, very specific. They're playing the music while they're juggling. And yeah. then uh, Neon was also a very, very strong three-ball juggler. Oh my God, yes, yes. And so another person very uh, instrumental in these early days of Yeah, they were, they were one of the first people here in San Francisco that started doing uh, full-length shows in theaters. 
Right, and also uh, Penn and Teller came through. Yeah, they came in like 1979, and they had there was three of them at that point, and it was called the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society. But they, they didn't do the streets; they just worked in theaters. They worked in a small theater on uh, Broadway. Yeah, we also worked with them at the Renaissance Fair, surprisingly. Yes. Right before their off-Broadway success, they did one season as Renaissance Fair performers. Yeah, yeah. But even then, they were also doing uh, their own show, uh, you know, during the week in a theater as well. Yeah, so. yeah. They you guys were... ever worked the, Katrina uh, and I used to call it the salad circuit, where the artichoke festival, the peanut festival, the garlic festival... The fish festival. And we went right from, like, We did the Renaissance fairs, me and Barry, okay. and that was our training ground. Yeah. But in addition to a lot of these agricultural festivals and Broccoli small festivals, small fairs and festivals. Yeah. State. We did state fairs. I mean, you guys did like uh, county and state fairs. Oh yeah, we did that all. Yeah. Time. yeah so there was also a series of uh, international festivals. Uh, what are your experiences, Fred, doing like the Halifax or Edmonton? Some of these. Canadian festivals. Did you do those as a solo or did you do those as a team? Uh, by the time I started doing those, I was working solo. So I worked with uh, Kit Trueblood from 75 to 85. And why did that act uh, come uh, to an end? When, he, became, he went to college, right? Yeah, well, no, he basically said, I'm turning 30, I have to quit and get a real job. <laughs> he had to. He, he had to. He, he sort of an like engineer. A, yeah, he became an engineer. He worked for Underwriters Laboratory for many years. And he basically said, it's a... Uh, Seven hours and 55 minutes of boredom and five minutes of things blowing up. <laughs> and how about you, Fred? Do you ever think about... Because uh, you, you're now... Uh, I'm now 63 and I'm still still doing performing, yes. And do you ever think about... Because you, you strike me as a performer who will never quit. Wait yeah, a minute, Fred, okay. How old are you? 63. Well, get me some water. Let me get Cause, you. Because okay. uh, Mitchell's 67. I know. I know. Yesterday. I'm just a baby. And I'm the I'm, baby at, at 58. You're, the we're, oh, yeah. we're you're children. Yeah, yeah. We're children. So when did you start? What was your first international street festival? Uh, let's see. First international street festival yeah. um, uh, by myself was uh, I'd started doing uh, fairs and festivals. I did the PNE, the Pacific I did, National. I did. That was fun. Yeah, Pacific National Exhibition in uh, Vancouver. Did you work with the Gizmo guys there? Yes. They were there? They, yes. They were there almost Well, actually, year. no, I worked with the Gizmo guys at Expo 86. You're talking about uh, Al Jacobs and Barrett Felton. Yeah. yeah, great yeah. show. Yeah. All in a little suitcase. Like, yeah. The whole show they was in a little... Did, I hated them. Yeah, they did <laughs> this beautiful technical juggling out of a suitcase. Out of a suitcase. Well, it was a very heavy suitcase because what they had was they had granite yeah, slabs yeah. That they were, they could do bounce juggling. Meanwhile, Katrina and I, we have two trunks, my A frames for the rope yeah. walking, the unicycle. These guys just show up with a little suitcase. Yeah, the more stuff you have, the more difficult logistically it is yeah. to move oh, around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think the first trip that we took overseas was to uh, Saudi Arabia. That was the first overseas trip. That was 70, uh, like 1980. That's one hell of a first overseas that was, trip. That was pretty crazy. Yeah. That was pretty darn crazy. That's the thing about juggling is it does allow you to do some pretty crazy adventures. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And not a, not a, a, a normal life, really. Yeah. No, yeah. but that's so part that, of the... We, uh, th th yeah. There's a trade-off. You know, that's you part of the allure. You don't yeah. get health care. You don't yeah. get security. You don't, right. get, you don't get pensions. Right. So, you know, a yeah. few perks thrown yeah. our way. I mean, one thing that was good for our entire industry, there was about three or four World's Fairs in a row that were in English-speaking countries. I think there was one in, I think, 82 in Spokane, Washington, 84 in the south someplace, 86 was uh, Vancouver, 88 was Australia. 
And did you do all those? Or, or uh, see, I did 86 and 88. And were there, there were, like you said, there were a lot of other performers. Yeah. No, I mean, they uh, basically, they, they cleaned out the street performing scene in the world and <laughs> took them to these festivals. I mean, How if you, you talk... How did you find the Australian audiences? Great. If you talk to some people from Australia, they'll say that the Expo 88 was kind of ground zero for when street performing started in Australia. Well, well, wasn't somebody doing a show from like a trash can? Was that Fred Garbo? Uh, yeah, uh, Fred Garbo did this thing where he, he was a character that quote unquote lived inside a trash can. Was that Crazy Fred? Was no, not not, Fred not Garbo Dirty became Fred. the inflatable uh, feeder. Yeah. He's yeah. the inflatable Fred. Yeah. Well, he became the most best known for the inflatable man character. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I ran into Dirty Fred in South Africa, and that was fun. Yeah, Dirty yeah, Fred's I, a different yeah. performer. But Fred I went Garbo. To Australia in 1988, yeah. the year yeah. you're talking about, yeah. and we actually worked at Vessel Sydney. Then we also performed, they, we got hired, and we didn't plan anything pre before we arrived. And then we got hired for the uh, French Festival at Adelaide, and we did that, and we had a great time there in 1988. So according to you, that's when... Yeah, that's kind of, that's when, when, yeah, people saw the success of the, uh, the World's Fair, the Expo. Right. It basically, there were the people that worked at the fair, and then there were the people that said, we're going to go anyway, and there was a walking street in the, in the same town, in Brisbane, and people would do street shows on this walking so kind street. Kind of like Edmund, uh, Edinburgh with yes. shows outside yeah. and shows inside. Yes, yes. Edinburgh also was a huge influence on our industry. Yeah. And you've done that, what, like six times, Fred? Uh, ten. Ten times. Ten, ten times. And you would bring your own show and work on the streets. Yeah, uh-huh. If you, if you ever, anybody, if you ever want to lose weight, produce your own show at the Edinburgh Fringe, the pounds will just drop off you. Because of the amount of work you have to do to promote yeah. the show, perform the show. Yeah. I think I lost like 20 pounds uh, the first time I did it. They have wonderful uh, potato stores, though. Oh, yes. <laughs> They're called the yes. Taddies. Yeah. I think one of our own, one of our brothers, Paul Nathan, who's more of a magician than a juggler, he, uh, there are like thousands of acts at the Edinburgh Festival, and he came in second with his I Hate Children the Children I Show. The I Hate Children Children Show. The I Hate Children Show. I think he's show. in Dubai doing the, the yes. same show. Yes. But isn't that a brilliant time? Yes. Well, a lot of performers, uh, they go and there and they hope to get there. the Perrier Award. He's there because I brought him over. No. And there yeah. was a time that me and Fred were there at the same time. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, both of you owe your entire careers to me. There you go. Well, Not there nice. was a time when I would do street performing that I had uh, my partner, Barry, had decided to slow down. And I needed to work on my solo act, so yeah, I came like out to the Yeah, like 2007, right? 2008-ish, yeah, 2008, yeah, 2009. Yeah, but and I came out, and both you and Fred, Mitchell and Fred, were both uh-huh. mentors to me as I got my act Dan, together as a please, solo. Dan, you please, you are Here's still, a question. What? Hang on. Wait, he's going to flatter me. Let Fred, please. I have please, to flatter Dan. Please you're, be quiet. You're Raspini. You didn't really need that much. You, maybe some advice on the street, but you, you, you already had it. Well, I had, you know, 30 years of performing experience by then, but, you know, starting over as a solo still was, it was nice to have support for some of the performers. I went through the who, same thing when I broke up with Katrina. Now, Fred, do you want to flatter me or you got something else to say? So, let's see, you did the, uh, the, um, the Edinburgh Fringe in uh, 2002, was it? Gosh, I don't remember the year. I know we worked at a place called the Gilded Balloon. Gilded Balloon, which was down on and the... And it was the hottest theater we'd ever worked in. Oh, yeah. And that it was, was terrible. Here's a little story about the Edinburgh Fringe uh, from me and Barry. They, they co-produced the show. So luckily, we weren't losing a lot of money. We didn't make any money, but we weren't because if you produce the own show and don't get an audience, you're going to lose a lot of money there. And they told us they're going to put up, I think it was 60 or 80 posters to promote the show. Oh, dear. <laughs> so we get to the theater, and the hallways of the backstage are lined with our posters. Wow. And the backstage dressing room is lined with our posters. 
we think, wow, they're really into us having us here. Look how many posters they put up at the theater. Not realizing they put no posters anywhere in the in the city. Oh dear. They just post oh them dear. in the backstage of the theater. Yep. And we, we walked around, there was not a single poster of us outside the backstage well, area. Well, at least you knew you were performing. Yeah. We did. And you it was did. very hot and we, yeah, that was the we, Gilded we Balloon. gave away a lot of yeah. tickets and it was didn't like sell it. Yeah. And there were so many juggling acts that there was a, a thing where why would we want to see a juggling act in the theater? Well, we can see an act in this on the street that has a 12-foot unicycle. And it's cooler. And it's cooler. Yeah, because the, the Gilded Balloon at that point was on the Cowgate, and it was one block from this street that they closed off called the Royal Mile, where they had basically a street festival every day yeah. with um, international big circus acts. And Gilded Balloon was mostly stand-up, so there was like yes. really good, uh, Ross Noble, I think, was one of them. He was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think. That uh, was back when he had red hair. Yeah, he was kind of a punky yeah. kind of character, but he killed. Yeah. And then the, the jugglers from America with their corny humor. With us. We did not get good uh, re- good reviews, even though we got huge laughs and applause. And I think it would get less laughs, but was more fringy, tended to get better yeah. reviews. Also, what happens is the reviewers tend to get jaded. So if you, if you get reviewed in the first week, they go, oh, that was really exciting. And if it was a crummy show, they was like, oh, it was... A good try. It was a clever. Pro- it was a good try. Their hearts cool. were in the right place. That same reviewer, if they saw that same act like two weeks later, when they're all like burned out, they're like, "These people should be shot." It's tough because there's so many performers. But as a juggler, do you still think it's a good thing to go and try the Edinburgh Festivals for the experience? Oh God, yes. Oh God, yes. Uh, I'm not kidding when I say there's uh, two thousand, maybe even three thousand different shows every day. Do you need any special permission to work outside, or just? Uh, yes. You have to do the draw. <clears throat> There, uh, so the the festival itself actually organizes. I think it's four or five. No, actually, no, seven. There's seven street pitches, and depending on whether you want like a, a small crowd or like a big crowd, and they have two divisions. They have um they have like an out what's called the alcove, which is for mostly magicians and music people, and then they have the uh, the the circle street pitches for um, big acts, and they they organize it. I think you pay like a small fee, maybe. 100 pounds to participate in it for the month and it's amazing because you may not make a lot of money but you are literally surrounded by the entire world comedy industry it's it's great it's a great place to go there for a month and like i say even though we didn't make money it's still one of the most memorable yeah performing experiences yeah. well i can tell you as a man at the end of the rope yeah. With quadruple heart. I'm kidding. I'm yeah. pretty good. But, yeah. Uh, right. But you did have quadruple heart surgery. Yes, I did. But uh, yeah. sometimes those memories are the ones that stick yeah. with you. You don't think about the money when you get older. Yeah. I mean, the first year I went was uh, 2000. And I took the, I basically flew into London, took the train into to Edinburgh. And the train station is about two blocks from uh, the main drag pitch. And so I'm trudging up the hill with my gear. And I turn the corner and see the festival. And I'm just like, going, holy I've died and gone to heaven. It's and there's statue acts and there's there was the stick man. Remember the stick, stick man. man? Stick man. Uh, he's a juggler. I'm spacing on his name. Is it? Uh, I don't know his real name. Like he Dan was a guy or, who did, or something. He did just devil sticks. Just devil really? sticks, but he was a strength. What do you mean, devil stick like a an oar and a ski yeah. pole and a. He did. Oh, wow. was a, he did a, a strength act. Yeah, it was mostly devil sticks, and he was one of the guys that utilized height. He had his gear in this giant sort of packing crate. It was about five feet tall, and he would stand on top of it. But so he did devil sticks. But yeah, I mean it was all strength stuff. So like 
like a full-on axe. An or a ski pole? Yeah, just about, yeah. Yeah, but the whole thing wow. was devil sticking different objects. Wow. Yeah, it was very... And he would call himself the stick man. Yeah. One of these characters you meet in, like Dirty Fred, or... Yeah. There was also the two Freds, the Canadian act. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. it was the two dicks, Dick two and Dick. Two Dick, Dick and Dick. Dick and Dick. Dick and Dick. Yeah, who were in... Uh, we met them in uh, Calgary. Did you ever do the Calgary Stampede? Yeah, I did the Calgary Stampede. I've also done uh, the the Fringe Festival in Edmonton, mm -hmm. and also the Street Performer Festival in Edmonton. Yeah, who, this, was Shelley Switzer the organizer at that time? I no, it was before Shelley. Maybe Dick, Dick Finkel. Dick Finkel. Yeah, remember and, the one European act where the guys on a on, on a on a six-foot unicycle, and then during the show, yeah. it goes, it's a partner act. Yeah, you although know, it oh, was the Flying Dutchman, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, Flying Dutchman. Yeah, they were although going they were to the Going to the uh, the Edmonton Fringe Festival, it was an education on how generic my show really is. So I'm like, you know, I'm like all proud. Yeah, man, I do the tightrope with people holding it. Hmm. And then there's five other acts that are doing that. Because that was your finale. You'd get uh, yeah. volunteers on both sides of the rope. Yep. They would hold a slack rope. Yep. And you would juggle either knives or, or torches. Yeah. And so, build up the comedy. Yeah. And now you ending with a, a straight jacket. Straight jacket, sort of a mishmash of a straight jacket and a card trick. Easier on the legs. And Definitely. you ended your when you were working solo. You eventually ended with the four chair levitation. Well, I, I did that because uh, yeah, uh, it was toward the end of my career. But I, I had for years had my had my rope as my finale, yeah. especially on Pier Thirty Nine. And I de I went to something else, and uh, it was definitely a drop in my head income. And, well, but it was still a good finish. You were able yeah, to. You well, did it very you know, well. You do something, you polish it up. Yeah. It works. Now, where do you guys see, as we get to the end of our podcast, where do you see, like, street theater? Is it is it as vibrant now? Do you think it's still a way to start your career? Or do you think jugglers nowadays, it's not really the place to get the same experience we did? Renaissance fairs still exist, and they're still a very happening. And, of course, there's state and county fairs which are, tend to be very tough environments. Would you recommend anybody coming out to Pier 39 to try to duplicate the road you guys sure, took? Sure, why not? But uh, I, I would just say that um, I know some guys now who are, who are doing really well street performing, and if you really want, want to dedicate yourself to that. And like guys like Bob Bestman. Bob Bestman. Yeah. Uh, the Sardine family. Yeah, yeah but they're not, they're not new. I mean, the, the, the tragic thing about... Well, some of the big places for street performing, San Francisco, Boston, New York. Denver. London. No, no, Colorado Springs. Um, well, Boulder, Colorado. Boulder. Pearl Street Boulder. Mall. Boulder. Yeah. Boulder. So all these places started out, you know, they were kind of bohemian-y places. And, I mean, um, in the High Street Circus, they moved here and lived in an abandoned building for a year. A brewery. A brewery. And if you why you haven't heard Wilder, he left quite a while ago. Yeah. So, so, so to go back, to circle back to this, it's a street performing, and I have a broad definition of street performing. I think of street performing as any sort of outdoory thing where you're passing the hat. I agree. So whether you're doing a show like actually on a real street corner or in a shopping mall where it's sort of scheduled or whether you're in a renaissance fair um, where you're passing that, I consider all of that street performing, you know, sort of the pass the hat busking thing where you're getting people that are walking from here to there to stop to see what you're doing before they continue on their way to go over there right. and i think street performing is a fantastic way to start because you get this this training on what catches people's eyes and what keeps them there how to hold them 
Yeah, and that's that's a trickier thing now than when when we first started. Because the attention span is low. Yeah, people have short attention spans, and you can do a, a stunt for like two or three minutes, and people go, "Oh, that's enough," and they'll keep going. So you have to sort of keep hooking them into what we're doing next. And honestly, I have not really experienced that because I've been retired now for like yeah. nine yeah, years. You think the, the the advent of the personal cell phones and yeah. people can check their messages. Well, yep. it's kind of a stereotype, but I do think a lot of people think that uh, today's Younger people don't have quite the attention span. Then. Or they can do a little video of it and say, okay, I, I, right. I can now share this experience. I'm not judging it. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, every, every generation has <clears throat> to deal with. Yeah, the new technology. Like we came up, there was no mics. Like when we started Renaissance Fairs, it, we were screaming. Now a lot of these stages have mics. A lot of these things are much microphone, more yeah. conducive to doing a different kind of humor where you can use the microphones and amplification. Mm -hmm. But it's also harder to impress people. It's yeah, yes. to bring magic yeah. into yeah. people's everyday lives. I noticed a big change in the 80s, around 84, 85, when they started televising a lot of comedy clubs, like Pauline's, or, what's it, Pauline's? No, Caroline's. Caroline's. And uh, I, I noticed that uh, there was, because of the exposure to just constant jokes and comedy, that you had to step up your game. Uh, yeah, it definitely know. made us step up our game, which is yeah. really, it's both good and bad, where it becomes part of the culture and people go oh comedy i understand that and i'll watch and then you get to the point where yeah you're not as funny as you know that robin williams special but my song. point is i think every era has its own challenges yeah you know? if you look at juggling i mean and you sort of got into juggling as a hobby first did you always think that of juggling as something to keep getting better at or at a certain point you thought this is serving the function in my show do you just keep increasing your skills or you just felt like it's, it's, it was a, a vehicle for you to perform through? Or did you keep continually practicing your juggling throughout your entire careers? Or did it hit a level where you felt you had gotten good enough? I practice a bit, not as much as the people that are getting better. So I, I'm basically <laughs> maintaining, I'm maintaining what I have and I'm, I'm incrementally increasing my skill. When we first started, you could see somebody go from not knowing how to juggle to being able to juggle four and five clubs in a year or two. And uh, now that I'm in my 60s, it takes a lot longer to increase my physical skill at something. I have a slightly different take. I think when I was younger, 20s and 30s, I was very enthusiastic about juggling. And I wasn't, well, I wasn't a great juggler at all. I never was. But uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a decent juggler, but uh, so many people better than me. But uh, as time went on, I, I found uh, that to get a little boring. And I was really attracted to the intellectual challenge of comedy and just writing, getting the laugh more than the applause yeah. became. Uh, yeah, well, well also high, you, you find that out. Big bucks. Yeah, also you find that out in the performing where you perform some juggle trick that you worked on for like two months and people just go, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then you do like a, you know, like a... A, a little stupid parallel trick and yeah. everyone's then you blown do, away. Yeah, yeah, you do one like one little sort of mimey, jokey trick and people uh, love that. That's right. Um, that's just how it is. Well, let's end our podcast with what do you think contributed to your longevity in the career? Uh, now, of course, Mitchell, you had to retire at a certain point. I just had a, I, I had physical issues, and so I had to retire. But you, you had a good 30-odd year career. I didn't feel robbed. If, if, if what happened to me when I was 58 happened to me when I was 48, I would have felt a little robbed. But I, I was definitely at the stage in my career where I was doing fairs and calling them up and saying, hey, instead of three shows a day, how about two shows a day just to keep my stamina going? So I was getting older already, and so I don't feel like I, I got robbed, but... I had to hang it up because uh, one of the things about 
our profession is that it's very physical, and when you get older, you're gonna you will encounter and, some difficulties. And you still watch jugglers like on YouTube? Do you still, oh yeah. You're still yeah. in the scene. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm in San Francisco. I attend the street performer meetings. You know, sometimes I go to lunch with all the guys. Let's Scotty pay. Let's Scotty pay. Yeah, Scott. You're still working. What, still do you, working. what do you attribute? To, I know you've had some health issues as well. You have a, some bionic parts. You have a. Yeah, I'm told. I'm. Uh, I have two artificial he's a, hips. He's a hipster. I'm yeah. a hipster. Two art. Yeah, I had uh, two hip replacements. Uh, so yeah, if you're at the airport, and he's still working. Yeah, if you're at the airport, I'm the guy holding up the line. Uh, <laughs> me, beep. beep. No, for real. It's Do you my really? Because I don't beep. Oh yeah, I, have a titanium I beep. Bar. I, I beep. beep. I've got a titanium. Wow. I've got a fifty thousand uh, dollar hip joint. Wow, it's crazy. Um, uh, my uh, the longevity. A <laughs> uh, couple of things. I live here in San Francisco, which has a year-round street pitch, so that's kind of a base to work from. And as I as I started in the seventies and eighties, all these things started happening that made it uh, lucrative. So. Uh, comedy clubs, cruise ships, uh, fairs, state and county fairs, international festivals, international festivals all these yeah. Edinburgh, all these things sort of happened kind of in my sort of adolescence as a street performer. With the internet now, you can go, hey, where can, you know, where do they have, you know, busking in Barcelona? And you can look it up. And you're leaving out a very important aspect of you, Fred, is what? your theater that you've had. Oh, yeah. Years. And, our, and our, you our, produ you have our produce shows and run a theater. That actually is a money loser. But, but still, that's something. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've produced, I think, uh, 12 different shows to take to the Edinburgh Fringe. And I was actually the guy that put uh, the I Hate Children Children Show starring Paul Nathan into uh, the festival for the first time. And you know he took it and just ran with the ball, and it's now it's got to be one of the more brilliant titles for. The oh yeah, and oh it yeah. It certainly fits his character oh, and his personality. It's unbelievable. You couldn't see him doing a, a serious children's show. Yeah, he, uh, he's evil, absolutely. <laughs> he's very funny. We will leave on that note that Paul Nathan is evil. Now he's he just <laughs> no, he's, a, a he's sweet very guy. funny. The show is the show's brilliant. And he's he can yeah it's so perfect for him yeah. you know just for him. Yeah, so, I mean... Uh, We're ending it with you, Paul. I bet you that makes you happy. He'll, I don't think he'll listen. He won't listen. No. Uh, but yeah, but uh, the, the longevity is all these things came online right when I was starting. And with the base of the street performing in San Francisco, you know, I was able to uh, keep in practice in the off-season. That's one of the, the hard things. So you're a performer, you do festivals during the summer, and then it's raining or snowing where you live, and then you're not working for six months. And then you do your first shows in May someplace, and you end up getting hurt because you haven't done shows in six months. That's and even nice. though it is cold and it's windy, it's still doable to do shows pretty much year-round, especially on the weekends. At yeah, year-round, yeah, sure. And you're still out there? Yeah. And Mitchell, you're still involved as, uh -huh. as helping Fred and also uh, going I, to the meetings? I'm around. I, I'm, I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm uh, financially independent. I'm living. I'm, I'm not. I mean, I, I wasn't ready to retire, but sometimes you don't have a choice. And I'm fine. And now, of course, you're both appearing on the Drop Everything podcast. Drop this Everything is, This is going at the top of my resume. And I appreciate you guys sharing the stories. A big thanks to Mitchell Barrett <laughs> and Mr. Frisco Fred Anderson. Thank you, Dan Holzman, for the opportunity. And scene. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 78, my conversation with Mitchell Barrett and Fred Anderson. Don't forget to check out our sponsor at juggle.org. The IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out all about their great products and, of course, their yearly festival. This year to be held in El Paso, Texas. Now go out there, 
drop everything except when you're juggling.